who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Um, may the Lord bless the reading of his word. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for this time to come to your word, and we ask, God, that you would humble our hearts, that you might open up our minds to receive your word as truth, that you would enable any distractions that we may be feeling, anxiety and stress of work, difficult relationships, fear that we're processing. Would you allow that to, to leave our minds in this moment and this time as we Ponder the hope and the beauty of your word as truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I, I just realized a couple moments ago that I made a crucial error, and that was, I thought, November jacket weather, bad idea. Uh, had two espressos, and I'm wearing a jacket, but once you commit to the jacket, you got to keep the jacket on. You know how that is. So I'm rolling with it. Um, if you've been with us for the last few weeks, you know we've been in this series entitled The Good Life, and we've been going through the book of 1 Thessalonians. It's a book written by the Apostle Paul. He writes to this church in the city of Thessalonica, and he writes to encourage them and to speak intentionally about different things they're struggling with. You see, what happens is when this church is founded, when it's started by Paul and his companions, Silvanus and Timothy, there's a period of time, a few years before this letter is written, because Paul was not able to return. But Timothy goes back to the city of Thessalonica and meets with the church and spends time with them. And he gathers intel about what they're facing and what they're going through. And so Paul is able to intentionally discuss and to speak to some of the things that they're going through, their doubts, their fears, the problems that they're having. And so if you've been with us, you've noticed that this is now the third week that we've been in one chapter. Chapter four, we've had three weeks in it. Because Paul really gets micro. He gets into specifics that the church is facing. Three weeks ago, we talked about sexuality and sexual sin. And he speaks about uh, that topic. And he asks the church and he urges them to trust God's design for sexuality. To believe that it is, in fact, the good life. And then last week, he spoke about work. You know, this church was struggling with work because as they came to faith in Christ, they began to face all types of obstacles. Some of them were let go from their jobs. People didn't want to work with them because they were Christians. And, and God is, is charging Paul to write to them to say that God is pro-work, there's dignity in work, and that you should work excellently, but your identity should not be wrapped up in your work. Rather, your identity is to be found in Christ so that you can begin to do work that matters because all work is God's work. And now, in the last part of chapter 4, he's going to speak about hope. And specifically, he's going to talk about the second coming of Christ. When we were reading along, you noticed 
that it was uh, this prophetic language. It was about Jesus's return. And the reason he's writing this section is because he wants the church to learn how to cope with grief. You see, what's happening to this church is that many people, their friends, their family, members of the church are passing away. Uh, They're dying. And not only of old age, though that's difficult in and of itself and causes grief, but they're being persecuted. And so they're being killed for their faith. And the church is having a really hard time understanding how to cope with grief and not be overwhelmed by it. What to believe about death. What to believe about the afterlife and Jesus' return. The questions that we have all asked and we continue to ask. What do we believe about death? What do we believe happens after death? How do you cope with grief? Because when you deal with death, it begins to challenge your notion of hope. And we all desire to be fueled by hope. We want hope as a part of our life. There's a very famous song written by John Lennon called Imagine. I'm sure everyone, at least most people, have heard the song. I'm going to read a few lyrics for you. Here's what he says. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. You see, what he's saying here is if you're struggling, if you're facing trials, if you are being overwhelmed with grief, just imagine, just fix how you think. Imagine no heaven and no hell and just begin to live for today. He's the original YOLO. Just, you only live once. Just live for today. Stop worrying about heaven and hell and death and all of that. Just live for today. And then there's, the, uh, there's these buses that are driving around London. Don't put it up there yet. Oh, you already saw it. There's a bus. Many buses driving around London. Here's what they say. Look, there's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. Look at that statement. There's probably no God. You want to know how to deal with grief and your questions on death and all that? Stop worrying. Just enjoy your life. This, along with John Lennon's song, Imagine, has to be one of the most elitist statements of all time. Right? If you live an average modern life, meaning you have a job, you can, for the most part, pay your bills, you have a place to rest your head, you have a comfortable bed, you have a shelter that you can live in, you have AC, especially in November when you decided to wear a jacket and that was a bad idea, you know you have AC, you have a refrigerator that can keep your food cool and allow it to last, and you have food. You have faucets in your house that is clean water and you can drink from. You can drink from any faucet in your house, though you would feel weird about a few of them. You can take a warm shower. You come home and you have a TV to unwind after work. You have a Netflix and a Hulu subscription. Some of you have cable as well. You got it all. You have a car. You can take public transportation. You live an average modern life. You see, when you hear that statement, like, you know, stop worrying just enjoy your life, or imagine no heaven above or hell below, just live for today, you may think to yourself that there's some merit there. Like, okay, I'm just going to try to be grateful. I'm going to think positive. I'm just going to try to enjoy my life. But the majority of the people in the world, if you were to say to them, just stop worrying and enjoy your life, they would slap you across the face. What do you mean enjoy my life? You mean live for today. I don't know where I'm going to get my next meal. I don't have shoes. I don't know where I'm going to sleep. I don't know if I'm going to be killed for my faith or because I live in a certain country. Many people in our country, 
the idea of just stop worrying and living for today. What do you mean? I'm pretty sure I'm going to get evicted soon. I don't know when they're going to turn the power off, how we're going to stay warm through the winter. I'm pretty positive that I'm going to get laid off of my job. I have debt. I have no idea how to pay down. What do you mean just stop worrying and enjoy my life? It's not that simple just to change the way that you think and imagine no heaven above or hell below and just think that maybe there's no God and then all of a sudden you can live a fulfilling life, a good life. That's not how it works. You see, for the majority of people, God is not just some intellectual discussion point to debate. God is something to fervently pursue. It's why we're here, to come to know the reality of God, to ask questions, and you're free to ask questions here, to grow in your faith and to mature in your faith because God is hope. Because if there is no God, then life is cruel for 99% of the people. It's just cruel. And so Paul wants to write to the church and to say, listen, we have hope. And it is hope that is secure because it is rooted in our confession, in our belief. But I have to say two things before we get started, because if I don't say these two things, you know that we're going to be speaking about the second coming. You're going to be thinking about this the whole time. So I have to say this from the very beginning. And the first thing is this. We're going to be discussing the second coming of Christ, not heaven. Those are two different things. Obviously, we believe as Christians in the reality of heaven. Paul himself writes in his letter to the Philippian church, he says that when you die, you're united with Christ for those of faith. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you're going to be united to him upon death. Jesus himself on the cross looks at the thief who professes faith in Jesus Christ as Savior, and he says, today you will be with me in paradise, heaven. You see, the Christian faith teaches that by grace, through faith, in the reality of Jesus Christ as the Son of God, who lived a perfect life, who died on the cross for your sins, was buried in the grave, and came forth on the third day in bodily resurrection, that if you believe that, by God's grace, you can be assured that no matter when you die or how you die, you're going to be united with Christ. You're going to be reconciled to God upon death. But that's not the end of the Christian story. The end of the Christian story is the return of Jesus. Jesus himself tells us that he's going to return. There's many different passages that speak about the return of Jesus. And when Jesus returns, though we're told we will not know the hour or the day, that is when the end of human history as we know it comes to a close. It's also called the day of judgment. And those who have put their faith in Christ will be brought into a new destination that is eternally in relationship with one another and with God. It's the new heavens and the new earth. That's what we're speaking about. The second coming, not heaven. And the other thing I'm going to have to say, and some of you are going to be disappointed, is we're not going to talk about end times theological positions tonight. Some of you are really bummed out about that. You were excited, you saw the passage, you thought that we're going to talk about and debate these. No, we're not going to do that. We don't have enough time, and I haven't had enough caffeine. There's no way to do that. I I understand what it's like. I used to love to read Revelation when I first became a Christian because it was like reading a fantasy novel. Like, what's going to happen with the dragon? And when's that? We're not going to do that. We're not going to get into the nuances of different theological positions. Also, because it's not Paul's intention here. Paul's going to speak about some specifics, but what he wants us to understand is the nature and the reality 
of Jesus's return. Because when you believe in that, it fuels you with hope to be able to cope with grief, and it changes the way that you live. So that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. So let's jump into verse 13. Here's what it says. But we do not want you to be uninformed brothers and sisters about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. This phrase right there, those who have fallen asleep or those who are asleep, is very common in Scripture. You read it in many different sections. It's just a common euphemism for those who have died. So anytime you see those who have fallen asleep or those who are asleep, it's not like they're literally asleep. It's just another way of saying that they have died. You see this also in Greek literature and Latin literature written in the same time period. It's like how we say so-and-so has passed away. They passed on. It's another way of saying those who have died. And so Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, church, about those who have died, because I don't want you to grieve like those who have no hope. Now, he's not prohibiting grief here. In fact, Paul himself writes in the book of Romans, he says that we're to weep with those who weep or grieve with those who grieve. In the book of Acts, we read the Jerusalem church grieves over the loss of Stephen when he's martyred. Jesus himself is full of sorrow and weeps over Jerusalem. So he's not prohibiting grief. Grief is a good thing. It's good to grieve, to grieve with one another. But Paul's concern is that they're being overwhelmed with grief and it's clouding out their hope. They're forgetting their confession. They're forgetting that they are actually to be people fueled by hope because of their belief. Instead, they're acting like everybody else in the culture that has no hope. You see, during this time period, there was many philosophers that spoke about many different things, and one of the prominent philosophers was Seneca, a Stoic philosopher, and he said this, hope is an uncertain good. This is what the majority of people believe, that hope is uncertain. It's wishful at best. So much so that what would take place actually during this time period is that there would be things called consolation letters, and they would send them around to people. You'd get one at your house. You would distribute it to to enable people to have some sense of hope when there really is none. And it has six characteristics. You can see it on the screen behind me. Here are the six characteristics of these consolation letters that would try to give people some sense of hope. The first two says, death is inevitable and death is the fate of all. These are just reminders to people that everyone dies, regardless of your social class, regardless of where you're from, how much money you've made, everyone dies. Then the person's memory and honor will live on. You're going to keep their honor alive. The fourth is that death actually brings about a release of the evils of life. So there's no more pain after death. The fifth is that the funeral is a really great honor. You should invest in a funeral to honor those who have fallen asleep, who have died. The last one is that death is either non-existence or a happier state of existence. You see, what this was meant to do was to give some type of mechanism for people who don't really have any type of hope rooted in any type of belief or confession, something to hold on to. Everyone dies. And then there's some action steps. Okay, I need to throw a good funeral when people die to show great honor and to celebrate their life. I need to begin to keep their memory alive. And I need to have this wishful thinking that upon death, they're released from the evils of this life and either they're in non-existence or they're in a happier state of being. 
Now, we don't have, like, consolation letters. Like, you're not going to go home and check your mailbox and be like, oh, another consolation letter. That's not interesting. Sending you some type of hope. But we have them, right? It's called Instagram. You know, Instagram encouragement. Giving you something to process and to deal with grief. Another, the biggest one I would say is probably Google, right? Google is like a search engine for helping to console you. You ever like sit there and you're like, man, my arm feels weird. Let me check on Google. Oh my goodness, my arm's going to fall off, right? It's, it, we go to Google for everything. We go there and we say, listen, how, how do I cope with grief? What are some steps to cope with grief? What should I think about death? And what you're going to read is very much like what you see on the screen. Everybody dies. It's inevitable. We should keep the memory of people ongoing. We, say, we talk like this, right? Not going to forget them. We set down days of remembrance. We start organizations in people's honor. We believe that the funeral is important and we think about the specifics because we want to celebrate the life of people who have passed on. These are really, really good things. But we also speak like number four and six on the screen as well. Culturally speaking, we say things like, you know, there's, they're not suffering anymore. There's no more pain. They're released from the evils of this life, and, and they're in a better place. We say this. We encourage each other with this. Across culture, different beliefs, though the majority have nothing to root that in. It's wishful. It's as if when we say they're in a better place and there's no more pain, that we end it with, I hope that's true. I hope it's true. We try to console each other with this. We try to cope with grief. And, and the Apostle Paul wants to say to the church, he wants to say to you and to me, we do not have a wishful hope. We don't have a wishful hope. We have a secure hope. We have a future hope. There's no wishful thinking here. We know what we believe, and we need to remember to confess it to each other. And here's what he says our hope is. Look at verse 14. He says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep or those who have died. This verse here, most scholars say it sounds like he's reciting a creed. You know, churches for thousands of years have recited creeds that are confessional statements of belief. And so Paul is essentially saying to the church, remember your creed. Remember what you confess, that Jesus died and rose again. And because you believe that Jesus has died and rose again, it gives you a future hope that is secure because you know that Jesus is going to take you with him, that you are going to be made alive. Look what he says, that God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. He's connecting here the resurrection of Christ with the resurrection of of the dead. He's saying that if you believe in the resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus literally rose from the dead, then you can be assured that you, no matter when you die or how you die, you will rise as well. Because you are united with Christ. Though you die, you will rise. Scripture tells us that the same power the same spirit that brought Christ from the dead lives where? In us. The same power that brought Christ from the dead 
lives in us. That same promise is given to us by faith in Christ. And Paul wants to remind the church here to remember your confession. How do you cope with grief? Remember what you believe. Remember what you confess, that Jesus died and rose again, and that God will make you alive. You're made alive in Christ, and the Spirit residing in you has the power to take you from death to life. That is your hope, and it is not wishful. It is secure. And then he wants to transition for them because the question that you have in your mind is like, okay, I understand that upon death, I'm going to be united with Christ in heaven or paradise, but there's no resurrection there. There's no bodily resurrection there. That's what's taking place at the second coming of Christ when Jesus returns. So what is that like? What is that future hope At the end of human history, when Jesus returns and I'm going to rise in bodily form the same way that Jesus did, I'm going to be united with his people and in an eternal kingdom. What is that like? How is that going to take place? And then so the Apostle Paul says this in verse 16 and 17 to give some insight. He says, for the Lord himself, Jesus, will descend from heaven with a cry of commands with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. What Paul is speaking about here, what he's referencing, is called the parousia. That's the second coming of Jesus. And he uses this word, and this word is used in reference of Christ's returning because it was actually a common word used of other type of returns in the culture. So what would happen is you'd have a city that was awaiting a a parousia, which would be a divine leader or emperor, some emperor or divine leader that was attributed with divinity. They were waiting for that emperor to return to the city. It's called a parousia. They're waiting for the emperor, the leader, the person of divinity, to return to the city. And so Paul says, do you want to know what it's like when Jesus returns, when Jesus' parousia takes place, when he comes back to his city, not one city, but his whole creation, his whole world? Here's what's going to happen. He's going to descend down, and there's going to be a cry of command, like the sound of an archangel, like the trumpet of God. What does he mean there? Is it literally like a trumpet, like... You know, like, what's going to happen? He's wanting you to see that it is going to be universal. Everyone's going to acknowledge that Jesus has returned. He's not coming back to one specific city or one specific area. It's like, oh, I wasn't there, so I missed it, or I wasn't another. No, no, no. When he returns and he comes down, everyone will know. Everyone will know. It will be a cry of command, the trumpet of God. And then he says, what's going to take place is that the dead in Christ will rise. Meaning, everyone that has put their faith in Christ prior will will rise. Whether that was five minutes ago, or five months ago, or five years ago, or 5,000 years ago, the dead in Christ will rise. Not all the dead he speaks about, only the dead in Christ. Those who have placed their faith in Christ will come forth. Then he says that the dead who will rise will meet those who are left, meaning those who are actually there when Jesus returns. 
We will meet together as one church, as one family, as one people to meet Jesus Christ as he descends down with the trumpet of God to usher in the new heavens and the new earth, eternity. And there's a a reference here that a lot of people debate, and we're not going to get into it, but I want to mention one thing. It talks about him coming down the clouds. It's like as if Jesus is like sitting on the clouds, like coming down, you know, that would be a little bit weird. I don't think that's actually what's going to happen. In fact, it's a reference to a passage in Daniel where Daniel speaks about the Son of Man, the Son of God, Jesus, coming down from the clouds and establishing his everlasting kingdom where he gathers all nations and all people and all languages to himself. He gathers his church that has spread out over thousands and thousands of years that have placed their faith in him. He gathers them together. And so what it's referencing is not Jesus literally sitting on a cloud coming down, but that there's going to be a meeting place as Jesus descends, we will rise to meet him. And this is when we walk arm in arm together into our future destination that is secure. And he says that by maybe the most encouraging words of this whole section when he says, so we will always be with the Lord. Always. This is eternity we're walking into. The parousia, the second coming of Christ, when he returns, though we don't know the hour or the day, we will be gathered together with the church over thousands of years who will place their faith in Christ. We will rise together and we will meet Jesus who is coming down. And we will walk together into this eternal destination with one another. It's a beautiful encouragement. It is hope that is secure that we confess each and every week, in fact, in the Lord's table that we'll do in a moment, that we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. We're to be fueled by this hope, but I want you to notice something. You don't read in this passage or in any other passage that what's going to take place is some individual souls are going to shoot off into another dimension. Never read that. You don't ever read that what's going to happen in eternity for us is we're going to be sitting in clouds with angel wings and harps with big smiles, you know, playing some song, and somehow that's going to be some wonderful existence. You also don't read that we're going to kind of morph into some energy field and we're going to get into some energy that's going to be blissful and everything's going to be... That's not the case either. In this passage... And in all of the other passages where we read about the parousia, the second coming of Christ, notice what happens. Jesus comes down. Heaven comes down. Revelation says that the holy city of God is going to come down. Jesus taught us to pray, and here's what he says. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on where? Earth as it is in heaven. Why do you teach us to pray like that? Why would we pray that the kingdom of God would come to earth? Because this is our final destination. This is our future hope. We have a living hope. We're not going to shoot off to some other dimension. We're not going to sit on clouds and play harps. We're not going to some energy field. Jesus is coming down. Heaven is coming down. The kingdom of God is coming down. The holy city is coming down. Jesus himself says this. When he returns, he's going to make all things new. He's not going to blow up the earth and make another special little earth. No, he's restoring this earth. In fact, Scripture tells us that the earth itself is groaning for its redemption. 
You see, this is where we will spend eternity with one another, with Christ. This place is going to be made new. This is the new heavens and new earth when Christ comes down to restore it, to take out all of the sin, to remove all tears and oppression and injustice. We will be here with one another in the holy city of God as it was intended. In Genesis, we were intended to be here until sin came in. Well, guess what? God's going to restore it and make it even better. This is our destination. It is secure and it is living. It's going to be full of high fives and hugs and fun games, and we're going to be playing in a city, enjoying a city with one another and in perfect relationship with God as it was intended to be. And this should fuel you. You see, what you believe about the future affects how you live in the present. There's a great quote by N.T. Wright. He says this, heaven is important, but it's not the end of the world. Isn't that great? Heaven is important, but it's not the end of the the world. And Paul says this in verse 18 to us. He says, when you understand this, when you believe this, you need to encourage one another. Therefore, encourage one another with this. This is how you cope with grief. You remember your confession. You remember your destination. You realize that you have a secure hope that is living that those that have passed on, it's not going to be some energy bumping into each other. No, we're going to be living with one another as we come to face Christ and we're resurrected with him. We're actually going to be in a city with one another. This hope is to fuel the way that we live. Viktor Frankl, who is a Holocaust survivor and an author, he, he says, those who have a why to live can bear with almost any how. You know, when you look back at some of the black spiritual songs that were written during the slavery period, facing great injustice and oppression and evil, you notice something about the songs. They are full of future hope. Amidst great grief, they're writing songs about a future hope. Look at the great song, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot says, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, coming for to carry me home. If you get there before I do, tell all my friends I'm coming to. You see, what you believe about the future affects how you live in the present. It affects how you deal with suffering and trials. It affects how you cope with grief. So why so many people in the first few centuries of the church came to faith in Christ because they saw the Christians and how they faced great trial and great tribulation and great persecution and great grief, but they were different than everybody else. They didn't need consolation letters because they were fueled by hope that was secure and it was living. And when this pierces your soul, when this confession is something that you really believe and you cling to, it changes everything about how you live, how you grieve with others, how you yourself grieve, how you think and believe about death, how you engage even in the city, because you come to realize that the worst evil that you face in this life is but a passing thing to the beauty and the joy that is going to be yours in eternity with your brothers and sisters in Christ in perfect relationship with God in this living hope. Paul says that we're to encourage each other to remember our confession that Jesus died and rose. And through faith in that, we know that though we will die, we will rise. And so we wait 
Because we don't know the hour or the day. I always tell people that if someone tells you they know when Jesus is going to return, you say, I know it's not that day. We don't know the hour or the day. But we don't wait with our hands under us. We don't just sit and wait. We wait expectantly. I told you that the parousia that was referenced in the culture, that cities would say, okay, we're waiting for the return of the emperor, we're waiting for the parousia. They wouldn't just sit and wait, they would wait expectantly. So what they would do, they begin to prepare the city. They knew the emperor was coming back, so they wanted the city to be perfect. They started to beautify the city and to restore the city. They would begin to go out and, and to hold banquets where they'd come together and they would sing praises of the emperor and they would discuss the emperor with one another. They'd give speeches about the emperor. They would begin to donate to the temple of the emperor. They would begin to give sacrifices to prepare the city for the return of the emperor. You see, we're told that the parousia of Jesus Christ is coming. He's going to return, and we are to wait expectantly, which means we're to begin to prepare the city because this is our future hope. This is our living hope, and so what do we do as a church, as people? We begin to beautify the city. We care about the city. We are city positive. We want to bring restoration to the city. We hold a banquet here every Sunday night to sing praises to our king who's going to return, and we discuss him with one another. We hear speeches, not only through the sermon, but you yourself are to give speeches and testimony and stories about God working your life to others in the city. We donate our time and our talent and our treasure to what, how God wants to use that to begin to prepare the city for his return. And we don't bring literal sacrifices, but we give ourselves as a living sacrifice of worship. You see, we are the ambassadors of Christ, expectantly waiting his return, and we are to be people that are fueled by hope, and it should change how you live and how you grieve. Will you pray with me? God, we are people that are undeserving of your grace. Lord, we are people that struggle with trials and suffering and we have a lot of questions about death. And, or would we cling to this living hope that we have in Jesus Christ that because he has died and risen, we can claim and confess and know that though we will die, we will rise. That our eternal destination is here with one another in perfect relationship and unity with your church and with you. Would that fuel us to wait expectantly, to begin to care for our city and to restore our city and to care for one another and to grieve well with one another, to give of all the things that you've given us that we might see you multiply it for more people to come to know that grace is available through faith in you, that forgiveness and love is available to all people because you are calling all people to yourself. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. A beautiful moment that we get to have in light of this is what we do together is when we gather together to hear God's word, but also when we gather together to take a moment to come before the Lord's table. When we gather together, the table is a remembrance moment. It's a moment to come before and also to reflect and to experience what God is doing by experiencing the grace he's given to us.